The National Archives podcast series, 40 Years On, presented by Mark Dunton. This talk was recorded on the 20th of October 2014 at the National Archives Kew. I'm going to talk to you about uh, 1974, 40 years on. Francis Ween, in his book, Strange Days Indeed, um, wrote about the 1970s. To those of us who lived through that era of polyester, platform shoes and power, power cuts, one thing seems certain. No one would ever wish to revisit it. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm just about to do. <laughs> But from the turn of the century onwards, the 70s started being re-evaluated and reappraised, and that's a trend that Ween himself points out. He cites the huge success of the Life on Mars drama uh, series and also uh, the stage show, Mamma Mia. But there's no getting round it. As I shall demonstrate, 1974 was a difficult and a grim year for Britain. The 70s wasn't all sequins and ABBA hits, unfortunately. But the talk that lies ahead of you isn't a total gloom fest, I promise you. Okay. I've attempted to make the story of this year um, as interesting as possible by drawing on a rich selection of documents from the National Archives, giving some uh, interesting perspectives on events that year. And there were some bright spots as well. I've also thrown in a good deal of pop culture, particularly towards the end, in order to lighten things up so that you don't all come away, go away from this talk uh, depressed. I wouldn't want that. Now, uh, I guess you could say that any year is eventful, but 1974 was particularly packed with incident. I'm generally going to take a chronological canter through the year, but occasionally I have to zigzag a bit, um, but I've tried to maintain a sort of chronological drive to keep things moving. 1st of January 1974 was actually the first time that New Year's Day had been a bank holiday. Um, but it began with the three-day week, and uh, it didn't really get much better after that. Um, but the three-day week was a measure to conserve electricity introduced by Edward Heath's Conservative government, and factories and businesses were limited to just uh, three days of electricity, while shops with the exception of those considered essential, were limited to either mornings or afternoons. So how had Britain got to this parlous state of affairs? Well, the background to the crisis um, was bound up with the Heath government's prices and incomes policy, which attempted to limit wage increases, um, as, you know, because that was the w main way of controlling inflation, as they saw things at the time. This policy began to unravel in the autumn of 1973. Following the Yom Kippur War in October of 73, the price of crude oil rocketed due to an embargo imposed by OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. And the oil crisis had the effect of boosting the bargaining power of the National Union of Mine Workers, who decided on the 12th of November to implement a ban on overtime in support of a huge pay claim. And so fears began to rise about the possibility of coal supplies running out. I think it's true to say that Britain was much more dependent on coal supplies at this time. So on the 13th of uh, November, the government proclaimed a state of emergency. Petrol shortages follows, and there were reports of government planning for petrol rationing. 
I think thousands, many thousands of petrol coupons were actually printed, although they weren't actually used, is my understanding. On the 12th of December 1973, the situation had deteriorated sharply and the government began planning for a three-day week. Chancellor Anthony Barber slammed the brakes on public expenditure and proposed major reductions which were approved by Cabinet. So, you know, in this memorandum here, it does start very starkly with that first sentence. The country is now facing the gravest economic crisis since the end of the war. Obviously, he wasn't to know what was going to happen in 2007, 2008. What is going on, he, you know, here he's, he's explaining to his cabinet colleagues that we need to start making major cuts in public expenditure. Now, even that you know, makes me feel quite no nostalgic in a way. I've mentioned that uh, from the 1st of January 1974, electricity was only to be provided to industry on three specified days a week. In fact, there was a whole package of tough measures, including a 50 mile an hour speed limit on all roads, and television was required to close down at 10.30 every evening, which in turn led to a minor baby boom. <laughs> Shows the effect of television. Heath and his ministers engaged in a struggle to find a solution regarding the miners' pay claim, but no workable compromise could be found. On February the 4th, the miners voted in favour of a strike, which would begin on midnight on the 9th of February. On the 7th of February, Heath asked the Queen for a dissolution of Parliament and an election three weeks hence, which took place on February the 28th. Now, Heath had asked for a renewed mandate from the British people, appealing to them to return a strong government able to take firm measures in the national interest, to quote from the Conservative Manifesto. Heath had gone to the country during an all-out miners' strike, and despite the fact that Heath did not set out to make the election a showdown between the government and the miners, the election campaign became focused on the question of who governs, the unions or the government? And, as many have said, the response was, not you, mate. The result of the election was very close, uh, and the Prime Minister's disappointment and a degree of bewilderment uh, can be seen in the confidential annex to a cabinet, uh, the cabinet meeting on the Friday the 1st of March. It was the first hung parliament since 1929. I mean, you get a real sense of immediacy from a cabinet minute like this because the Prime Minister said that as the result of the general election was disappointing for the government and also confusing to interpret. Although a number of results were still outstanding, it was clear that no one party would be able to command an overall majority. Although Labour won fewer votes than the Conservatives, Labour won more seats, 301 as opposed to 297. The Liberals won 14 seats but secured 19% of the national vote. But the mere fact that a cabinet meeting is taking place at all for the incumbent government ministers the day after an election, is obviously very unusual. So what was going on? Well, Heath asked the Cabinet to consider the option of attempting to form a right-of-centre coalition with the Liberal Party. Heath saw it as his patriotic duty to attempt to form such a coalition. He duly secured the Cabinet's agreement that he should consult with the leader of the Liberal Party, Jeremy Thorpe, about the possibility of a coalition or an agreed programme for the short term, at least. 
thought was later to become associated with a major scandal. The National Archives has a fascinating document. Um, one of the, uh, it's in the series Prem 16, the Prime Minister's Office Files, and it chronicles the story of Heath's attempt to form a coalition with the Liberal Party. It's compiled by Cabinet Secretary Robert Armstrong, and his note for the record is entitled Events Leading Up to the Resignation of Mr. Heath's Administration on the 4th of March, 74. And there are some surprising and colourful details within this document. For example, it refers to the difficulties that Edward Heath encountered in trying to get in touch with Jeremy Thorpe. On the Friday, Jeremy Thorpe, the Liberals had done you know, rather well in securing 19% uh, of the national vote. And um, Jeremy Thorpe was on a triumphant torchlight procession around Barnstable. And uh, let me just read you this bit. It says, I left a message at Mr. Thorpe's home. This is uh, the Cabinet Secretary speaking, Robert Armstrong that the Prime Minister would ring him, and, and we did so repeatedly, but could get no reply. Eventually, a short time after midnight, Mr Thorpe rang back. It seemed that he had been waiting by his telephone from about 10.30pm, but there was something wrong with it, and it had never rung. Um, you know, now, some people might say, OK, a fault with the telephone line, how very 1970s. But um, this problem, I mean, of all the times for it to happen, so... This problem meant that the two leaders did not get to speak until gone midnight, but Thorpe accepted Heath's invitation to come to Downing Street at 4pm on, on the Saturday. Well, Thorpe was determined to get away from his home in North Devon without attracting press attention, and Thorpe later told the PM of the plans he had made from get, for getting away from his home undetected. He had sent his car with a bag to a neighbouring farm to await him. Then he had donned a country coat and Wellington boots over his town suit, walked across three wet fields to the farm and driven from there to Taunton. He had thus managed to avoid the waiting journalists. Even so, he found one waiting for him when he arrived at Taunton Station. So all this subterfuge didn't quite work out as planned. From the 1st to the 4th of March, the nation waited for the outcome of these negotiations, but the talks foundered. The key issue was that the Liberals demanded a commitment to electoral reform from the Conservatives, and at most the Conservatives would only offer an inquiry into the subject, and this did not satisfy the Liberals. There are some poignant details in Armstrong's note for the record about Heath's last hours as Prime Minister. So at about 6.10pm, the Prime Minister said a few words to the assembled staff. He said that the staff was the number 10 family and that he could not have been better served, and he thanked them all for all that they had done. I replied, that's Robert Armstrong, I, I replied very briefly, saying that it was a very sad occasion for the family, who were proud to have served him, thanking him for his kindness and thoughtfulness to us all, and wishing him good health and better luck. The evening of the 4th of March, 74, saw Harold Wilson back at number 10 as PM. And at this point, I'd like to read you an extract from When the Lights Went Out by Andy Beckett, because I think it's a brilliantly descriptive piece of writing about this event. On the evening of the 4th of March, 74, Harold Wilson returned to Downing Street as Prime Minister. As he emerged from his official car, there were cheers and boos from the crowd waiting in the cold. Wilson walked slowly, almost trudged, 
the few yards to the front door of number 10, with his shoulders slack and his back to the crowd. On the doorstep, he turned and waved, a little woodenly, without any apparent joy. He gave the briefest flicker of a smile. Mr. Wilson, said a reporter, can we ask you, sir, what it feels like to be back here? The Prime Minister began to open his mouth. Then he stopped and glanced twice at his wife, Mary, pinned next to him by the flashbulbs and television lights. There was a long pause. The crowd quietened. Wilson opened his mouth and shut it again. He swallowed twice. And then he spoke flatly and with deliberation. We've got a job to do. We can only do that job as one people. And I'm going right in to do that job now. Well, almost 10 years before that, in October 1964, Wilson had entered Downing Street as Prime Minister, surrounded by much excitement and optimism with his promise to harness the white heat of the technological revolution to thoroughly modernise Britain. And the contrast with March 1974 could not have been greater. At the start of what was to be his final term, Wilson acted swiftly. In early March, the miners' strike was settled. The miners were given a 32% increase and the three-day week and the state of emergency came to an end. Now, there was a great deal of relief about this at the time, but there was also disquiet in certain quarters. Bernard Donoghue, head of the Number 10 Policy Unit from 1974 to 79, later commented, it was really a capitulation on the miners' own terms and solved little in the long term. The final confrontation between the miners and the elected government was merely delayed a decade. Wilson's final period as Prime Minister from March 74, and which was kind of renewed after the second election of that year in October, through to his resignation in March 1976, has been described by several historians as a very unhappy and fraught period. And um, this has been documented by Bernard Donoghue, already mentioned, and also Joe Haynes, who was um, Wilson's press secretary. Um, now, these sources refer to recurring dreadful rows between Wilson and Marcia Williams, who became the Lady Falconer. Marcia Williams was, in a way, Wilson's political secretary. Um, now, Wilson's reported dependence on drink um, and also Wilson's perceived lack of grip has been mentioned by, by these sources that I've mentioned. But I don't want to get really drawn into exploring the, 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 these uh, aspects because I'm going to stick to what is documented in the public records. And one of the chief problems facing the nation was the growing threat posed by inflation. And this was the man who had to wrestle with it. Just look at those formidable bushy eyebrows. Dennis Healy, appointed as Chancellor of the Exchequer, was, is a great character. Um, he uh, had a distinguished record as an army officer in the Second World War, and he had a sort of pugnacious fighting style in the political arena. And he's also a very cultured man. Um, he uh, once spoke of the need for politicians, for all politicians to have a hinterland, um, particularly for when they were out of power. Uh, meaning sort of, you know, some sort of hobbies or interests away from politics. Well, Healy was immediately confronted by the perilous state of the economy. Um, look at this quote from the minutes of a cabinet meeting on the 14th of March. The Chancellor of the Exchequer said that the country confronted an economic situation 
which might well be the worst that had ever been faced in peacetime and which was deteriorating. And then there's a whole kind of gloomy litany of figures, inflation running at over 10%, balance of payments deficit, borrowing requirement. Um, you know, there's uh, a whole lot of um, gloomy figures there. And the Chancellor went on to tell his colleagues at this cabinet meeting that it was clear that there would be no scope for in an increase, any increase in living standards this year. Given all of that, um, it was surprising that in his first budget, instead of cutting spending, Healy implemented Labour's expenditure plans and increased borrowing. Um, he was also to put up taxes significantly. The higher rate uh, was raised to 83% in his second budget. And I think there was a rate of 98% on unearned income, which led to quite a lot of um, rock tax exiles. Later on, Healy regretted several features of his first budget, which he'd intended to be financially neutral, uh, but was actually inflationary in effect. The public finances turned out to be in an even worse state than had been predicted by the Treasury. Healy said, I was too inexperienced to appreciate the full horror of the situation. That's what he said later on. And the horror of the situation regarding to inflation, uh, the prices that people were actually paying for goods in the shops became increasingly apparent. And at this point, I'm just going to jump briefly out of the chronological narrative to a document from October. Um, the Central Policy Review staff produced these worrying predictions of inflationary trends. So it's, they're saying, on present trends, the, re the increase in retail prices between the fourth quarter of 73 and the fourth quarter of 74 will probably be, probably be of the order of 17 to 20%, and the corresponding increase over 1975, perhaps 18 to 21%. The strains resulting from a 35% increase in prices over two years will be very serious, but the implications for the longer term are even more disquieting. And inflation was just set to continue advancing until it peaked at a staggering 26.9% in August 1975. A key part of the Labour government's response to this problem was to implement a social contract with the trade unions. A um, this was a programme of voluntary wage restraint in order to hold the line against wage inflation. Now, I mean, concerns about rising prices even found their way into a top 20 hit by wings, believe it or not. Um, we had this uh, extract from the lyrics. I won't sing it. Um, <laughs> you'll be glad to know. Um, I took my bag into a grocer's store. The price, uh, the price is higher than the time before. Old man asked me, why is it more? It may not be one of Paul McCartney's finest lyrics, <laughs> and I speak as a fan of the Beatles, but you know, it, it, even the fact that you know, inflation is even turning up there in a pop single shows that it was really uh, a matter of national concern. Well, back to the political scene, and there are two figures who were particularly significant in uh, 1974 who I feel I've just got to mention. One is Tony Benn, um, who Wilson appointed Secretary of State for Industry on the 5th of March 74, as a post he held until June 75. Wilson resisted Benn's efforts to introduce socialist measures by means of the National Enterprise Board. Ben was very keen on state ownership, nationalisation and cooperatives, but Wilson, it's, I think it's fair to say, did not share his vision. 
Tony Benn became a bête noire for the press at this time. By way of contrast, the other figure that I think I should mention is Sir Keith Joseph, former Secretary of State for Social Services. Now, he underwent a revolution in his thinking in the mid-1970s, and he made some significant speeches in 1974. As Andrew Marr has written, Joseph's conversion to free market, small state economics had the force of a religious experience. This new thinking laid the basis for the Thatcher Revolution, which started five years later. One of his speeches in October 74, given in Birmingham, was highly controversial. Um, I think it was claimed that he'd argued that social economic classes three and four should resist the temptation to have more than two children per family. It caused a lot of controversy at the time. Back now to the main narrative, and we've reached March 74. And a highly dramatic event. Princess Anne and her husband, Captain Mark Phillips, were being driven to, Buck driven to Buckingham Palace, having attended a charity event. As they drove down the Mall in their limousine, a Ford Escort swerved in front of it, forcing the chauffeur, Alexander Callender, to stop suddenly. The Escort's driver, Ian Ball, went over to the royal car. Princess Anne's personal police officer, Inspector James Beaton, got out and was shot by Mr. Ball. In fact, he was shot three times in total. He used his own body to shield Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips from Ian Ball's bullets. Several people were involved in the sub subsequent struggle. I see other vehicles turned up. I think a taxi turned up, you know. And um, soon there were other people on the scene struggling with the gunman. And you know, the, these people included, uh, there was a journalist, there was a passing motorist, before Ball was knocked to the ground by PC Peter Edmonds and disarmed. Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips showed a great deal of bravery and presence of mind during the incident, which was effectively a kidnap, kidnap attempt. Ian Ball tried to get hold of Princess Anne, and I think maybe at one moment he smashed the uh, window of the car that they were in. Now, all of the victims recovered from their wounds and Ball was detained under the Mental Health Act after pleading guilty to attempted murder and kidnapping. In July, the men who thwarted the kidnapping attempt, and there were seven in total, including chauffeur Glenmore Martin, they received gallantry medals from the Queen. Both the Princess and Captain Mark Phillips were also honoured by being admitted to the Royal Victorian Order. She as, a Dame Grand, she as a Dame Grand Cross, and he as a commander. Back to some more grim news in June. On the 1st of June, the Flixborough disaster occurred, which was a massive explosion at a chemical plant sited on the banks of the River Trent in Lincolnshire. And it was the biggest explosion to ever occur in Britain during peacetime, until the fire at Hertfordshire Oil Storage Terminal at Buntsfield in December 2005. At Flixborough, 28 workers were killed and 36 others on site suffered injuries. Outside the works, injuries and damage occurred on a widespread scale, but there were no fatalities. It was recognised that the number of casualties would have been even higher had the incident occurred on a weekday. The explosion was estimated to be equivalent to 16 tonnes of TNT, and the subsequent fires raged for 10 days. A considerable amount of property was destroyed in Flixborough and the surrounding villages, 
and the explosion was heard over 30 miles away in Grimsby. The Atomic Weapons and Research Establishment at Aldermaston produced a report on the infrasonic and seismic waves which resulted, and we have that report here. Just to uh, give you some idea of the incredible force of this explosion, so this is a, an image of the Flixborough plant before the explosion, and now we see it afterwards, and it's been absolutely devastated. Now, following the disaster, there was a huge public um, debate about the safety of industrial plants, and regulations regarding industrial processes were made considerably more rigorous, and the newly formed Health and Safety Commission took a close interest in these developments. The precise causes of the disaster were complex. Now, this was a plant which used chemicals to manufacture nylon. But it, you know, the actual, as I say, the actual precise cause is very complex. And although there was an official inquiry concerning it, the details about the exact causes continues to this day. We've now reached August, and on August the 9th, 1974, following the Watergate affair and accusations of a cover-up by the White House, Richard Nixon became the first US president to resign the office and he was replaced by Vice President Gerald Ford. This is his uh, resignation letter. It's certainly to the point. So it's addressed to uh, Henry Kissinger, and it says, Dear Mr. Secretary, I hereby resign the office of President of the United States. Sincerely, Richard Nixon. There we are. That's a very stark resignation letter. You're probably thinking now, where is Dunton going with this? <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. Um, but we're in the summer period, and our holiday habits changed significantly in the 70s with the huge expansion of package tourism, particularly for destinations such as Torremolinas and Benidorm in Spain. How many of you remember that wonderful song, E Viva España? It, uh, it was a massive hit for the Swedish... Sylvia, I won't pronounce, I can't pronounce that name, uh, uh, surname, reaching, and it reached number four in the UK singles chart in September 1974. As Dominic Sandbrook has written, this song, quote, captured the excitement, the hedonism, and the sheer awfulness of package tourism <laughs> in its early years. However, in the prior month, to this being a massive hit, a darker side to the package tourism industry was revealed when the court line suddenly went into liquidation at the height of the holiday season. Now, court line aviation was an important British holiday charter airline, and it had helped to pack, uh, pioneer these sort of package tours to Spain and other destinations in the Mediterranean. But I think there are a number of factors behind its decline. Uh, the oil crisis of October 73 onwards, the quadrupling of the cost of oil, the three-day week, etc., meant that uh, package holiday bookings slumped in 1974. And these factors, plus poor financial controls within the business, caused the company significant difficulties. Their financial position deteriorated, and by the 13th of August, James Callaghan, the Foreign Secretary, was warning British embassies across the world of court lines' imminent collapse. Uh, this is a, 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 a telegram that uh, James Callaghan sent to FCO embassies across the world, really. And um, he's saying here on the 13th of August, 
the company Courtline's finances, as a result of investigation of Courtline's finances by accountants, it has become clear that the company's financial situation is critical and is likely that the Courtline will collapse within the next 24 to 48 hours. Courtline account for something like 25% of the UK package tour business. And it is estimated that at present, some 40,000 British holidaymakers are abroad on Courtline holidays. Of these, 70% are in Spain, and then it goes on to list all the other countries where they are. Now, at this time, you know, this was the, the position of Courtline was not public knowledge. By the 14th of August, the die was cast, and Callahan warns that the company is expected to go into liquidation early tomorrow, at which all, all its operations will come to an immediate halt and Courtline aircraft will cease to operate. And that's exactly what happened on the 15th of August. Um, it has just been announced that the Courtline group is going into liquidation and that all court flights ex-UK have now ceased. So um, about 40,000 holidaymakers were stranded abroad. Now the story generated masses of headline coverage in British newspapers. And the Daily Mail spoke about the need for a massive airlift to bring the stranded holidaymakers home. But the reality was not as dramatic as that suggested, however. Um, the majority of those stranded were actually able to complete the holidays they had booked before they were flown home. But there was some hard bargaining around the issue of compensation for Spanish hoteliers. And ABDA, the Ab Association of British Travel Agents, was very busy at this time, as you can imagine. We now move to October. The Guildford pub bombings, which occurred on the 5th of October 1974. I'll, I'll say a bit more about this tragic event in a moment, but first I need to uh, just backtrack a little to give a bit more context. The conflict in Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles, continued at this time, and you know, Dominic Sandbrook has said that the slaughter in Northern Ireland cast a dark shadow over life in Britain in the mid-1970s. In the spring of 1973, the provisional IRA had launched a bombing campaign in Britain, and in 1974, this campaign significantly increased in intensity. And this is demonstrated by this dreadful litany of events. Now, I'm not going to go all through these, you know, but uh, you know, I will mention the Guildford pub bombings, which occurred on the 5th of October 1974, and the pubs uh, were the Horse and Groom and the Seven Stars. Now, those pubs are no longer um, operational uh, now, but uh, these pubs were targeted because they were popular with British Army personnel uh, stationed at the barracks in Purbright. Five people were killed, and a further 68 were wounded. These bombings uh, and the ones that Birmingham as well, on the 21st of November, uh, caused shock and outrage throughout Britain. And then there were miscarriages of justice uh, as well. Um, you know, so, you know, for example, the guilty verdict and then the subsequent 15-year imprisonment of the Guildford Four uh, until their sentences were overturned. 21 people were killed in the Birmingham pub bombings and 182 were injured. And again, there was a major miscarriage of justice for the Birmingham Six. Some people believe that the perpetrators of most of these bombings were the Balcombe Street Gang, an IRA unit that was involved in a siege in London in late 1975. 1974 was the remarkable year of 
two elections, and I've already referred to the hung parliament, which was the result of the February 28th election. Harold Wilson called for a general election on October the 10th. He was aiming for a working majority in the House of Commons. Commentators have said that this election campaign was a very low-key affair. I suppose it was difficult to strike an optimistic note when the country was suffering from so many problems. Labour did win a majority, albeit a majority of only three seats. Labour, though, even though it just had a majority of three seats, Labour managed to stay in power until the 28th of March 1979, thanks in no small measure to some very efficient Labour whips. Now, do you remember this face? Oh, I've given the... I've, <laughs> I told you who it is anyway. Okay. Well, Richard John Bingham, uh, the seventh Earl of Lucan, commonly known as Lord Lucan, disappeared without trace following the murder of his children's nanny, Sandra Rivet, on November the 7th, and an assault on his wife, Veronica, who identified Lucan as the assailant. Despite a huge manhunt, Lucan has never been found. Another face from this time. On the 20th of November 1974, John Stonehouse, MP, a former British cabinet minister, disappeared. A pile of his clothes was found on a Miami beach. Now, the presumption was that he had gone swimming and had been drowned, or that it could have been a case of suicide, or, you know, some people speculated, was, had he been eaten by a shark? He'd got into financial difficulties, and there were questions about his financial dealings. In fact, Stonehouse had faked his own death. He had absconded to establish a new life in Australia with his mistress. However, he was tracked down in Australia and arrested on Christmas Eve, 1974. And this was the message that John Stonehouse relayed to Prime Minister Harold Wilson after his arrest in Australia. Please convey to the Prime Minister my regrets that I have caused this problem and to all others concerned. The Prime Minister's statement in the House was correct. My wish was to release myself from the incredible pressures being put on me, particularly in my business activities and various attempts at blackmail. I considered, clearly wrongly, that the best action that I could take was to create a new identity and an attempt to live a new life away from these pressures. He actually goes on to state, I suppose this can be summed up as a brainstorm or a mental breakdown, and he apologises to the PM and all the others who have been troubled by this business. It's a rather extraordinary message that he's relaying there uh, via the FCO. Now, Australian police initially thought he might be the fugitive Lord Lucan, <laughs> and uh, they actually conducted a test, you know, just to make sure that he wasn't actually Lord Lucan. Um, but uh, Stonehouse was deported to the UK and remanded to Brixton Prison until August 1975. And in August 76, he was convicted and sentenced to seven years imprisonment on 18 counts of theft, fraud and deception. In the authorised history of MI5, Christopher Andrew reveals that Stonehouse had been an agent for Czechoslovak state security going back to the 60s. He'd been a spy and you know, he had passed information on to the Czechoslovak state security. And we have a, a file about this as well from 1980. Now, Stonehouse's method of disappearance, uh, of course, gave inspiration to David Nobbs for the popular TV series, The Rise and Fall of Reggie Perrin. We've now reached December. 
And I've promised you a bit of popular culture just to lighten the mood. So, the Christmas number one hit of that year, anybody remember? It was Mud's Lonely This Christmas, yes. I mean, although you could say that, you know, even that song is rather forlorn. Um, but, uh, how many of these do you remember? These are, these are the... Uh, these are the number one singles of 1974, and um, you could say a very curious mixture, indeed. It was a very good year for Mud, um, <laughs> funnily enough, uh, with their two number ones, because uh, they'd also reached the top spot in January with uh, Tiger Feet. Here's some more. Um, yeah, I one thing here, no, quite notable, Carl Douglas Kung Fu Fighting, because there was a Kung Fu craze this year. <laughs> which I think even led to a, uh, a cartoon called Hong Kong Fui that some people from the time may remember. There are some particular artists to uh, single out. Um, ABBA achieved great success, winning the Eurovision Song Contest that year, which was held at Brighton with Waterloo, that memorable number. And this group spent many weeks in the charts in 1974, the Bay City Rollers. Uh, but speaking as someone who uh, loves pop music, in my opinion, it's only my opinion, even pop music went off the boil somewhat this year. The glam rock bubble of the early 70s, which had been dominated by groups like uh, T-Rex and Slade and The Sweet, had burst. And David Bowie and Roxy Music were still going strong. But there was a bit of a vacuum in the world of pop music. And I agree with the points made about this um, by a chap called Alwyn Turner, in his book, Crisis, What Crisis? Britain in the 1970s. He writes, as the moment passed and the leading artists departed for fresh territory, what remained was little more than a pale pastiche of the past, with groups such as Shawadiwadi, <laughs> the Rubettes, and Mud, dominating the singles charts with recreations of American high school pop, from the Kennedy years. But as Alwyn Turner points out, even these pastiches of 50s and early 60s pop were significant in the sense that they showed a public demand for nostalgia, a kind of yearning for things past. And that was also reflected in uh, the success of TV series such as Upstairs, Downstairs, uh, Laura Ashley's Clothing Range, and a book like The Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady, very, very popular. Um, in tough times, people seek refuge in escapism and comforting visions of the past. This probably helps to partly explain the success of Downton Abbey after the crash of 2007-2008. By the way, there were some exciting new acts who made a breakthrough this year. <laughs> 1974 saw the rise of the Wombles, steered by Mike Batt, singer, songwriter and producer. Another group who made a big impact that year, Sparks, with This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. Uh, I'm sure you'll remember, well, some of you may remember, uh, their appearances on Top of the Pops. So you had um, the, the brothers, the Russell, they've got Russell Mayle there, you know, he, the lead singer with his sort of rather maniacal kind of movements that he used to do. And then rooted at the keyboards, you have his brother, Ron, um, who used to give very sinister looks to camera. Um, apparently when John Lennon was watching Top of the Pops, saw them on there, he said something like, uh, good, 
Good grief, they've, they've, they've got Adolf Hitler on the telly. <laughs> I think it did frighten children somewhat. Um, anyway, the, the TV viewing public could always distract themselves from the nation's problems with their favourite sitcoms, such as Man About the House, uh, It Ain't Our Hot Mum, and Are You Being Served? Uh, I do like that image of my <laughs> Mrs Slocum there. She does look rather fed up. So, how to sum up 1974? Well, as we've seen, a lot of things went wrong that year. Britain suffered from industrial strife, soaring inflation, rising unemployment, and IRA bombing. Um, and any residual optimism from the 60s was, was pretty much crushed. And I remember, as a teenager, trying to make sense of it all, and my analysis may not have been very sophisticated, then, but uh, to me, even the electoral stalemate of the February election was an indication that nothing seemed to be working as it should. But there were some bright spots, and people happily distracted themselves from the nation's problems in many ways, through pop music, TV, and even the kung fu craze. I want to end on an upbeat note. Um, this is a rather exaggerated uh, take. I think this is a modern take on the 1970s interior. But despite inflation, British living standards, if you take the 1970s as a whole, British living standards rose. I found a Daily Mail article of May 1972, and it highlighted the rise in living standards using figures from market research. For example, in order to earn the price of a 19-inch black and white television set, um, the average British worker would have had to have worked 208 hours in 1961, by 1971, this figure had fallen to 85 hours, and it was to fall still further. Um, consumerism rose during the 1970s, reflected in the widespread acquisition of electrical or white goods, and more and more families acquired washing machines and fridges. And this was a paradoxical aspect. Despite the recurring economic crises, strikes, and power cuts, most people enjoyed greater affluence than ever before because the real costs of electrical goods were falling. So material comforts for the home helped to take the edge off the nation's economic difficulties. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.